I think there's this energy of the interview as embodied through colonization that can feel really like I have the right to ask anything and also I have the right to receive it or not receive it instead of like just the act of you sharing just the act of me receiving is now a responsibility and I now have to do something with this knowledge. Hello and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be getting to know artist and activist Christina Maria Patino Sochilsihuatl Hul. Cristina Maria is the co-founder and lead visionary of Las Imaginistas, a socially engaged art collective working to liberate the public imagination. Several of Las Imaginistas' projects have centered on Brownsville, Texas, including Taller de Permiso, an arts and economic justice campaign. Through hands-on art-making workshops and events, Taller de Permiso harnessed the community's collective imagination to parse and reimagine the municipal permitting process, particularly as it affects small businesses operating in communities of color. Another Las Imaginistas project is Borders Like Water, an ongoing international cross-cultural collaboration between healers, visionaries, and thought leaders. Borders Like Water centers ancestral wisdoms and environmental understanding to answer the question, if borders have been like ice, how can they move like water? Christina Maria is also the weaver for Vosas Unidas, a network focused on immigration and community development issues serving the multi-state Rio Grande Valley. Now, I have to admit, this interview did not go as expected. At her request, I had sent Christina Maria a list of questions I was likely to ask her, and just about an hour before we were scheduled to speak, she sent me an email indicating that she was feeling uneasy about our interview. I thanked her for her forthrightness and told her I really hope we'd be able to speak about her discomfort. To her credit, she agreed. And so the interview ended up being about, well, interviews in a wonderful and eye-opening way. I hope you agree. Christina Maria spoke to me from Tucson, Arizona, one of the many communities she frequently visits as part of her work on borders like water. I would like to call in kind of my guides before the interviews officially begins. I actually have a prayer from Black Elk that I have been connecting with recently. So if it's all right, I'd like to read that. And it's up to you whether or not you want to include this? Oh, I'll definitely include it. Okay. So this is from Black Elk Speaks. And Black Elk was a healer, or I also like to use the present tense, like is a healer with the Lakota. And when the ethnographer John Knight, I'm not, a, I'm not sure how to say his last name, Hart, maybe was looking to document the ghost dance. He went to different communities uh, looking for an elder um, or a medicine person who had experienced or taught the ghost dance. And 
it was recommended that he speak with Black Elk, and this was after Wounded Knee. And Black Elk hadn't shared his story really with anyone from the outside in quite the same way at that point. And he was an elder. And when John Neidhart approached him, he agreed to be interviewed by him. And it was really a process of more than a year. They met, they smoked tobacco together, and then he asked Neidhart to come back uh, when the gra- I think he said when the grass was tall. When he came back, and this was also after Black Elk had kind of turned down other interview people for an interview. And when he came back, part of the beginning of their talking was this prayer. And I found it really resonant for when speaking to new people to help me ground and help set the space of of what my intention is in communicating. So I'll read this now. Great spirit, you have been always, and before you, no one has been. There is no one to pray to but you. You yourself, everything that you see, everything has been made by you. The star nations all over the universe, you have finished. The four quarters of the earth, you have finished. The day, and in that day, everything you have finished. Great Spirit, lean close to the earth that you may hear the voice I send. You, towards where the sun goes down, behold me. Thunder beings, behold me. You, where the white giant lives in power, behold me. You, where the sun shines continually, whence come the daybreak, star, and the day, behold me. You, where the summer lives, behold me. You, in the depths of the heavens, an eagle of power, behold. And you, Mother Earth, the only mother, you who have shown mercy to your children, hear me, four quarters of the world, a relative I am. Give me the strength to walk the soft earth, a relative to all that is. Give me the eyes to see the strength to understand that I may be like you. With your power only can I face the winds. Great spirit, great spirit, great spirit, all over the earth, the faces of living things are alike. With tenderness have these come up out of the ground. Look upon these faces of children without number and with children in their arms that they may face the winds and walk the good road to the day of quiet. This is my prayer. Hear me. The voice I have sent is weak, yet with earnestness I have sent it. Hear me. It is finished. Hechato alo. Now, my friend, let us smoke together so that there may be only good between us. And I offered some tobacco for us to the earth before we began. So thank you. In light specifically of, of the importance of tobacco as kind of grounding and offering for prayer. Thank you. I, I behold you and I hear you. Thank you. Thank you. So now I can answer your question or if a new question has arised. It's so interesting that you started with this prayer that a white person heard through an interview that was rarely granted by the interviewee. Because in our email exchanges this morning, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the legacy and the historic power dynamics of the interview, right? I didn't anticipate when you emailed me that I was going to need or want to get there. But when I saw the questions, that was what came up in my body. I thought of, I thought of Maria Sabina, who's an indigenous healer in Oaxaca, 
who was interviewed by, I can't remember his name, but he was a banker of all things, interestingly. And he was really interested in healing plants because at the time, this was before they were made illegal in the US. And so there were people who like kind of on the fringes of all different types, you know, it wasn't at that moment in time, it wasn't just like hippies and liberals and people skipping war who were connecting with plant medicine. It was bankers and it was psychiatrists and it was academics. And so he went to Oaxaca and found this healer in Huatla de Jimenez. um, And her name is Maria Sabina. And essentially she was reluctant to be interviewed She ultimately consented based on a certain set of agreements, and he violated those agreements. He published writing about her that ended up being on the front page, I think, of, or the cover of like Life magazine, which led to this all spiral of events that ultimately just destroyed her life. And she died. And her community. Yeah. Yeah. And now, if you go there, it's painful. Like you'll see. I mean, when she died, she was really rejected by her community. I mean, not only did she die in poverty, but she died with the community really being angry at her for how they felt like she had brought on all this change. And now if you go there, there are taxi cabs that are called, you know, like there's a Maria Sabina taxi cabs, or if you like get a bus there, there's like the bus with her image on the side of it. That was the image that came to mind when I read the questions. And the other image that came to mind is I've been reading a little bit of Michael Pollan's books recently and listening to how he talks to indigenous people when he asks them for wisdoms or insights about the plants in a way that's both, to me, how it sounds is something to the effect of like, prove it to me and like prove it to me in a way that I through my colonial mind can understand so there's this kind of like aggression to the investigation that feels less about like coming with humility to a teacher and more about coming as a skeptic to someone who may or may not be a charlatan and him trying to dissertain with the supremacy of his cognitive abilities, uh, what is real and what is not. So that, those were the two things that came up in my body. And so I thought, oh, I should think about, you know, who is normally in power in an interview? What are the dynamics legacy wise of like, you know, white men in power investigating or asking for something or and then discerning whether or not that is applicable or it's real or how it should be applied or where it should be contextualized. And then also the knowledge itself being cut off from the, like that it can be cut off, that it can be extracted. And so I was looking this morning, it just made me, I mean, I knew that like as a start, but then it did make me wonder, well, what is the history of the language or the process of an interview. And I thought, when we think about land-based cultures, when we think about first peoples, what is the context of an interview there? Like if I think about my ancestors 
on both sides, whether it's from my white side or my indigenous side, at some point in both those histories, there were land-based first peoples. And what were those people's relationships to what now might be classified as an interview, even though they probably wouldn't have used that language. And I thought you might be someone who doesn't know something and you go to an elder and you ask for some wisdom. But I think the difference in the way that the tone of interviews have evolved through the colonial, through university systems, through the implementation of Western, like the imposition of like Western epistemologies on first peoples of this continent and on people descendant from enslaved peoples is that instead of coming with a humility and a sense that the wisdom is fully contained. And so even if I don't understand it, that is a truth. What it has evolved to is that the truth of the speaker might be interpreted or classified or deemed correct or not correct or dismissed or not dismissed. And also, in certainly in 19th and 20th century in the Western world, it was interviews were commodified, of course. There's a, there's a market for them. Yeah. Which complicates things. Yeah. And then inter- when I was, when I like did history of the interview in Google this morning, the first thing that came up <laughs> was job interviews, history of the job interview. And I thought, oh, that's a really, like I hadn't gone there in my mind, but that's a really interesting thing to like link this to. Like, yes, is this resource or is this wisdom worthy of being employed further or anyway it was interesting so no and also i mean to bring it back to the uh the essay you wrote for ford foundation it's also interviews are also intricately linked to employment and funding they're the same thing Mm -hmm. you do have to sell yourself to someone in the hopes that they will value your work and your being enough to compensate you yeah there was one question you asked in the or you sent in the document, I think something like, can you give an example of when this work has worked? And it- Yes, that's right. The impact question, which I'm always nervous to ask. So yeah, talk about that. Well, it just reminded me of a grant report question. And I felt like, huh, that's interesting. Like, am I proving my work to you? Or am I- it made that come to mind. And then the other thing it made come to mind was this interview I heard with, I can't even remember who it was, but Steve Inskeep. And he was interviewing this woman who was a songwriter. I can't remember what her experience was, but she she went through some deep meditation practice after, I think she, I, I think she had a close member of her family pass. And she said, kind of, in passing to answer his question, I had some very deep messages that I received directly from spirit. And then that led me to XYZ. And then I wrote the song. And Steven Skeep said something like, what did spirit tell you? And I just felt like, are you prepared for that, Steve? Like, are you really going to receive it? Because those messages... Like they have an energy and then it's the job of the receiver to protect them. And I think there's this energy 
of the interview as embodied through colonization that can feel really like I have the right to ask anything and also I have the right to receive it or not receive it. Instead of like just the act of you sharing, just the act of me receiving is now a responsibility. And I now have to do something with this knowledge. And sure enough, she shared what was her very deep truth. And it just became this this blip in the interview that then was followed up with the next question. And it felt like such a disservice to the gift she had received. And it reminds me of when I was with the Wichol in the healer I work with was in Oaxaca at the time. And he had, he brought out the Wichol, they do a lot of very intricate beating and art based on what the visions they receive in ceremonies. And he had a a skull of a cow that was covered in beads. So, I mean, it's like a foot and a half of very intricate beadwork. And we had the altar out for the ceremony and he had the skull underneath a textile for the whole ceremony. The ceremony is like 12 hours. He had brought all these ceremonial objects from Nayarit in a big Tupperware box on a, on a bus. He has to travel for nearly 24 hours. And then we get to the land where the ceremony happens. He takes out all the objects and then he puts this one particular object under a textile so nobody sees it. And then we do the ceremony and no one sees it. And then at the end of the ceremony, he puts it back in the Tupperware and someone asked him, like, why do you keep it covered? And he said to protect its energy. And that comes to mind also in thinking about like, how do we receive or protect the information that's exchanged. Clearly in your work, you have to do a lot of quote unquote interviewing or communing with people in in the city. What did you learn about your own interviewing, the, the way you get information? I, I think this is a really important question because I feel like it's one of the things that, like when you asked me that question about impact, the thing I felt like the best way for me to respond was to say, I can tell you how I've changed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can tell you other stories, but to really tell you, I think the full scale of like what it means to change the imaginary, I have the most insights into how my own imaginary has changed. And that I can track from when we began Amahnistas. We did a project called Hacemos la Ciudad, where we asked community members to participate in art events where we would reimagine the city and reimagine a decolonized border. A lot emerged from that project, but I think the thing that really stuck with me afterwards was when I shared it with, I shared it with lots of people and they were like, this is amazing. And then I shared it with two people who were, kind of high power people. One of them, uh, they were both urban planners. And so these two individuals, when I asked them what they thought, they said, well, uh, something, they said something to the effect of like, I didn't need you to do all that work in order for me to tell you that, like, I could have told you that without you talking to all those people. And I thought, well, holy shit, that is a very provocative thing to say. (laughs) And yes. it really made me think it, and it's really stuck with me. I mean, this was maybe 
Did you believe them? Four years ago now. I both believed them and didn't believe them. I believed that they literally thought they knew everything and that they did not think that they needed to do deeper work to listen to the community in order to learn anything because that reflects the systems that they engage in. You know, they were not placing value on community engagement in the way that that we had just done. So it made sense to me that they would entirely dismiss it because that affirmed their logic system. I also knew there were things in these texts that they were not implementing or living through practice. Whether or not they thought they knew it, I knew they were not embodying a reality of it. And then I thought about (laughs) one person in particular said, well, everyone says they want more parks. I mean, and I just thought, well, that's interesting. And that that really stuck with me because I thought, well, that is true. People do want more. Like that is a, I mean, we want to be back more in nature, like urban planning is backwards. But then I thought, well, that seems like kind of also the the thing about this feedback that really bothers me is that I don't think if we were to repeat this, for example, all along the border, that the land in all these different places would have the same thing to say. And then I, it got me thinking about like, the people actually might say things that are kind of similar. And when you think about like community development issues, it's not like we're asking for radically different issues. When you look at like the demands of the Black Panthers, they're actually very similar to what our community said. It gets manifest in slightly different ways. And a decolonial border is dealing with it from a slightly different viewpoint. But I did see a component of what that person was saying as an important insight. The other thing that happened at a similar time is somebody told me they had done all this. They'd been paid, they'd been hired as an outside agency to to interview people at a low-income housing project and ask them how they wanted the community to be redesigned. They came to me kind of in a laughing and frustrated way to say, all they say is they want air conditioning. And we're like, no, just you need to imagine more. And I thought, well, the reason they're saying they want air conditioning is because they've lived in a life of such extreme oppression where they live in this border region where, and in this public housing system where there's been no air conditioning and they've been asking for it for however long and they haven't gotten it. And they're saying, can at a minimum you get us this one thing that can just help us to think clearly in the middle of the day. <laughs> and, yes. And it, I felt like, well, the system isn't set up to support them in really deepening into the whole imaginary of this question. It, it, the, the question and the way that the interaction is set up, there's not the space for them to really dream or imagine what else they might want. And also dreaming can feel so vulnerable because like, gosh, you get someone really worked up on a dream and then you go away and you don't build it. Oh, that's going to piss me off. Like I just told you my whole dream and then you didn't do anything about it. So it can feel, it can feel dangerous to really let ourselves dream. Yeah. It's very, one's very vulnerable when you're sharing a dream because it's about longing and hope. Yeah. And so to come back to your question of now, how do we work? 
when I started the Borders Like Water project, I felt like part of this is going to be, it's going to be really important to listen to the earth directly and to learn how to listen to the earth. And so I began working with indigenous communities throughout Latin America. And I wondered, am I going to interview them? Or am I going to record this? Or am I going to take notes or photograph? You know, and some, it's not even like people would always tell me no. I felt like the responsibility is really on me to understand the power that I'm bringing to this circumstance and what is right. And so I just made the kind of agreement with myself that I was there as a student and that if it felt appropriate to take notes, I would take notes. I pretty quickly stopped recording everything. And I pretty quickly stopped photographing everything. And that's what led, I think, also to a lot of the kind of things that I wrote about in the article published with Grantmakers in the Arts recently that talks also about the ghost dance where, you know, you can't record the ghost dance. You can't document it. I don't know enough about the traditions to know whether or not it would have been appropriate to witness it. But the real teachings from the ghost dance come from participating in it. And I wondered, what would that mean for the art world? You know, like, if I now were to receive a vision to revive the ghost dance, perhaps the most important dance to have happened on the soil of what is now recognized as the United States, I don't know a foundation that would fund that. When I tell them, I, I'm, I don't know how to talk about its impact. I don't know how to talk about, I mean, not only, it, it just wouldn't be appropriate. It would be kind of like a violation of the spirit of the dance. And so I don't really engage in, in that way with the wisdom teachers I work with. I try when I'm working, and actually this connects to a woman, Barbara Tedlock, who was an ethnographer or who is an ethnographer who worked with Guatemalan healers. And when she went to study them, they gave her permission to record and watch the ceremony. And then afterwards, she got really sick and she thought she might die. And she asked the healer what happened. And he said, oh, you violated the ceremony with your intention. And now the spirits are mad and you probably are going to die. And she was really worried and she, she ended up getting medical help and she recovered and she came back to the healer and the healer said, you have to learn through doing with us as a healer yourself and then you can write about it. That story really sticks with me because, and that's how I think I approach this work now. I can learn what I'm able to learn by trying to transform myself when I meet with elders and I can only learn when I'm really trying to engage with respect for these teachers. And when it's appropriate, then from that space, I can share the information and kind of understand how to, how to share it out. But that's how I think about interviewing now. I'm really grateful to Christina Maria for honoring her instincts and being honest with me. It made for a much more genuine interview, I think. Plus, you know, if nothing else, I will purge future questions of anything that smacks of grant applications. Oh my god, as if artists need more of that kind of testing. 
Hey, if you know of anyone who would enjoy this or any of our episodes, won't you please let them know? Your word of mouth means the world to us. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening.